Hello, I'm Dave Moss, founder of The Unfunded List and host of the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. Thanks for joining us as this year we're exploring collaborative giving. Today, we'll be discussing family philanthropy with a husband and wife who give through their family foundation, Jay and Shira Ruderman of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Um, all right, great. Hello. Welcome to the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for for, uh, for reaching out. Uh, hello, everyone listening. My guests today are Jay and Shira Ruderman, and they together they run the Ruderman Family Foundation. Welcome. Thank you. Happy I, to be here. I have uh, some questions. I sent them. I like to send my questions along in advance to give you some time to think up answers. Hopefully, you've had a chance to do that. We uh, we do long, good long interviews here. I think a lot of philanthropy coverage is cursory. There's this um, in the in the post every now and then they do uh, a local philanth- three questions with a local philanthropist, and it's just like three softball questions. Like one of them is usually like, "What's your favorite color?" And it's always been just like a pet peeve of mine because I'm here at Unfunded List. We read proposals from folks who are really trying to figure out philanthropy and how it works, and they don't. I don't think any of them care what your favorite color is. Uh, but there is a lot of inf- a lot of important information about you as people that they should learn. Um, Sheer and I were just talking about how sometimes work the work culture in america can be impersonal right we can try to make things very transactional right and remove our personhood and our personalities from the work and in, i think nowhere is that more evident than in philanthropy when you're sending grant proposals and getting them rejected it's a very impersonal process for these folks and i understand from giving grants myself you can't talk to everybody who wants to be funded by you <laughs> right. right you couldn't it would there were not enough hours in the day unfortunately so hopefully this is a chance for the ones that really want to hear in deep what you want, what you have to say to learn more about you and everything. So we'll, uh, it's all right. We're going to dive right in. I'd like to start at the beginning. Where did each of you grow up and what were your childhoods like? So <clears throat> I was born in a city not, not uh, far outside of uh, Boston, Malden, Massachusetts. Um, and then when I was of school age, we moved down the road to Linfield. Uh, which is a middle-class suburb of Boston. Um, you know, my parents moved there because they, they had a great school system. Um, you know, I grew up in a middle-class household. Um, and in fact, my grandmother, who I was very close to and I spent a lot of time with um, from the time I was a child until the time, you know, she passed away when I was in high um, college, um, you know, was... I would say lower middle class or, or lower class. Um, so my first exposure to wealth really didn't come until after I was already away at college. Um, so it's interesting, you know, people, you know, you may have, um, you know, preconceived notions of philanthropists and, and how they grow up and what, you know, where they come from. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I this came as I was growing up and um, philanthropy was never something that I considered as a profession until much later in life when I decided that my passion, which was really public service, could be melded with philanthropy. Um, very interesting. So we'll, let's get we'll get to the philanthropy specifics a little bit. Um, but here, uh, let's we'll talk a little bit more about the child, uh, little, little boy, Jay. If, if, mm-hmm. if, if, if you'll allow. Um, so what did you enjoy doing? As you played baseball? That kind of stuff? Regular little boy stuff? 
I played baseball. I played all sorts of sports. I mean, we were talking with our kids, you know, we have teenagers, four teenagers and, um, my wife who is Israeli, um, and tends to be very on top of the kids. I, I said, this is so different from the way I grew up. The way I grew up was sort of like, uh, you know, the parents had their own thing and the kids were like, go out and play. So we did a lot of playing outside. I mean, of course, this was, you know, I'm, I'm old enough. So I grew up before the age of uh, personal computers and internet and, and, uh, and you know, personal um, devices. So, you know, we, we just, we played outside. We went into the woods, we played sports. You know, we had real relationships with the people um, around us. It was a very different time of life. Um, but I think, you know, regular middle-class American upbringing. And you still live pretty close to where you grew up? You know, I live close, but not in, in the same type of environment. I grew up in a suburb. I, I grew up in, in, a, in a, a bedroom community for Boston, um, a small town with about 12,000 uh, people, probably out of 12,000, there were maybe were 100 or 200 Jewish people. So I really grew up feeling a minority in my community. Huh. Um, I, I now live, um, you know, right outside of Boston in a very heavy, heavily. Um, in Brookline. They have Jews there. In Brookline, a, a, a big Jewish community. Um, so it's a very different type of, of existence. And we're also right right smack uh, next to the city of Boston. I'm going to walk down the street and I'm, in, I'm, I'm right next to Boston College and, and uh, you know, right in the heart of the city. It's very nice around there. My family's from Newton. Uh, my um, grandparents lived on Avalon Road in Newton. Uh, Wabin, I think they call that area. Yeah. I was always been, the Boston suburbs... Um, a little bit confusing to me, but it does seem like it would be a very nice place uh, to live. I always enjoyed uh, visiting there. Uh, yeah, and they were, depending on traffic, you get right into Boston and enjoy all right. of the um, all the construction projects that Boston has to offer. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you right now, the construction projects are basically done. Yeah, right, the, so the dig, the dig is finished. I haven't been in a while, in home in a while, so I mean, Boston is a very the big dig is done. Um, there's a lot more parks. Um, it's a much more livable city. It's also, it's, it's a much less segregated city than when, when I grew up, you know, there were certain neighborhoods in Boston that if you were not from that neighborhood, oh, yeah, sure. you, you did not venture into that neighborhood. And now, you know, go into a neighborhood like uh, Dorchester or South Boston. And it's a, it's a cultural mix of a whole bunch of different people. So Boston has changed. Um, even yesterday, because our, our the mayor Marty Walsh became he became he the labor secretary, the labor secretary. So our, fir, our we have our first female and African American mayor in the history of the city, um, and there's there's an election coming up in, in the fall, and most of the candidates um, are minority candidates. So Boston has changed a tremendous amount because it used to have a real stranglehold by you know the irish catholic uh yeah. um community really dominated politics and and it's it's a different city now it's a completely different city from when i grew up oh yeah uh ayana presley as well the certainly the um you were seeing a lot of different kinds of representation still kennedy's though <laughs> um there's at least yes. one at least I mean, one kennedy in the mix i uh well he is actually not Joe Kennedy is not a member of Congress now because he ran for right. Senate. 
against uh, Senator Markey, and he lost in the primary. My guess is he so, will run for something again. He will run for something again, and he is very talented. Um, I happen to know him, and, and, and he's a great public servant. But the Kennedy name, you know, at one point it was like royalty. You know, well, particularly, and we are Kennedy both from. Ran, you know, there was a certain part. We're both from New England. What's that? The, the, you're right. Uh, so I'm from Maine, right. and they, there's a Kennedy compound in the Belgrade Lakes region, about ten minutes from Waterville. Actually, right. I so I, I've I've gone swimming with like I hung out with Joe a little bit when we were kids. We're like exactly the same age, I think. Uh, and Kate and several others. And in the area there, like the Kent, it's it's you're right. It's the biggest possible name. That's the biggest family and everything. Um, and uh, all across the U.S., but particularly in New England. Um, and you're right. I think it's that's um, it's for the best that we're including. I think it's, more voices. I think it's it. right, and I think also the Kennedy name, which certainly is is still substantial, but a lot of people who grew up, you know, when President Kennedy was president and 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 Senator Kennedy, they're, they're no longer around anymore. So I, I think mm. that. You know, people respect the name, but it certainly doesn't carry the automatic support that it used to. Uh, yeah, well, he lost his most recent election, so there's some evidence of that. Um, but right. yeah, uh, the I think that's it's it, uh, important for folks who um, trying to understand politics, who may be from outside of New England. Um, you can't really underestimate like just how revered the Kennedy family was by by almost everybody. Um, the uh, Shira, you are from Israel. Certainly. What was and uh, I've been there, and kids play, kids play outside there. When I went, there were children running around the streets everywhere. Uh, yes, is it was that you? Were you running around in the streets unaccompanied? Um, yeah, I grew up uh, in Israel, in one of the largest cities. But my neighborhood was a very uh, remote uh, neighborhood from the center part of it, and I was uh, planning spending a lot of time outdoors, um, but also did some other things. Like I used to dance in a folk group. So um, I was uh, many hours at practice as a, as a kid, as a young girl, and knew very peaceful, uh, I call it uh, life. Grew up in a very middle-class uh, family. My parents were first generation uh, in Israel. So, you know, we had to start everything from scratch and, uh, Pretty much work very, very hard to make uh, small things happen. One of the things that they tried to impress on me the few times I've gone to visit uh, is that um, compared to America, children are generally afforded more freedom. Uh, and I remember in, in particular, there was this, there's one holiday where, they, where the children all build very dangerous contraptions. I forget what it was called. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking like about. What is it called? Yes. So it's like bonfires, where you uh, put fires out and people uh, bonfires. Bonfires. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so well, the and uh, just in general, a lot of a lot of freedom, and that 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 is what has that is one of the reasons why it is uh, the entrepreneurial nation that it is. Um, would you generally agree with that? You it, nodding. I agree that uh, <laughs> the culture. Yes, I said I agree that in Israel, the culture is more independent 
it's for kids. Uh, you want to see them doing for themselves and, and push them to think and to create more than uh, to serve and to give them the solutions and the opportunities. I mean, things change like uh, all around the world, but absolutely, you need to advocate for yourself. You need to go and explore. You need to go and do things um, on your own in order to you know, to deserve the independence that you want. But also we have to remember in age 18 in Israel, you enlisted to serve in the army and mm. it's a mandatory uh, participation uh, as part of being a citizen. And I think it has a lot to do with the overall approach because if a parent knows that in age 18, your kid is leaving the house right. uh, and going to independent way, you have to understand that Prior to that, they're already preparing themselves. So independence is part of the process of growing up. It is in high school, they, ex they expect you to already take uh, responsibilities and participate in some duties for societies, which here in America, when I raise my kids here, it's completely different. My kids are not expected to give 100 hours in, in grade then ninth, in the ninth grade, 100 hours of volunteer mm -hmm. um, to their society. And then in 10th grade, they have to do a personal commitment. And it's mandatory. It's not like if you want, and it's not for the college uh, resume. And it's not like uh, I just need, but I don't really care. It's like you have to. It's part of uh, being a citizen in this country. And it makes a big difference. You're growing up different, understanding that you are part of something bigger than you. And there are things that are not just about the individuals, they're about the group and the tribe and the community that you have to sacrifice in order to be part of. But things are changing and not all the time for, you know, for good. I mean, Israel is becoming, you know, very wealthy country and as a result of it things change in in values and society but i hope that the core issues of giving back serving uh, being an independent thinker would not change for many years to come uh terrific the uh so you enjoyed uh, growing up in israel then Is that, i you sound very passionate it. you sound very passionate about it <laughs> i <laughs> I enjoyed it. I love it. I miss it for my kids um, at many moments. The um, so uh, uh, little girl Shira and little boy Jay. Uh, do you remember the first time that either one of them gave a gift, gave something to someone else? You know, I don't know if I remember specifically a, a gift, but I remember. Uh, growing up and going to these um, Sunday morning uh, synagogue breakfasts um, where they were fundraising for different things for the synagogue or the, for the Jewish community. And um, I remember our role was to serve. Um, you know, we were constantly bringing food to the table and selling <laughs> raffle tickets and and you know you'd sell the raffle tickets and the raffle tickets would go to you know support the community and and i remember being how excited that i was given the responsibility i was probably like i don't know you know nine ten years old you know going around with these raffle tickets and collecting money and and um i mean that that was you know i, I had learned from my dad of how important it was to not only to give back, because at that time, I don't think he really had much wealth, 
but to really be actively involved in the community and, and how much pleasure that brought me from being involved in the community. Um, and that's, that's really what I took away from, you know, that, that, that philanthropy is not just about, for most people, about giving, but it's about volunteering and it's about, you know, raising money. And th there's so many different aspects to um, philanthropy that we often don't talk about. But that, that was my, I think, earliest childhood memory. So I did not know the word philanthropy. I mean, it is, was a very foreign word to me. Uh, but we grew up in my household, and also in Israel, the word philanthropy was not familiar, not clear, with a lot of a sense of responsibility, giving back, and charity. It, is, it was three core uh, values that uh, I grew up with. I remember if I go back to being in elementary school in fifth grade, um, we had back then um, a group of uh, many, many immigrants from Russia came to Israel and we were asked to be assigned uh, to a new student coming and just work with them, tutor them, culture, you know, culturally to help. Uh, and it was a moment that like, you know, she did not know a word of Hebrew. I did not know a word of Russian, um, but this was my first duty to make her part of my school and my society. Other memories that, you know, and I grew up in a very low middle class uh, household. It's not that my parents had no, you know, there were work, hard workers physically and, um, you know, worked for hours every week. And it was not an issue for my parents to say, no, there are people that need more and we're going out right now, you know, putting bags together and going uh, to help, physically to help. It's not just let's uh, buy a pack of food. It's like you have to go, you have to sit, you have to build, you have to help them to clean. And I think this is the beauty for me to actually separate the word philanthropy, which is mainly associated with giving money and in larger sums in today's uh, reality that I live in to a sense of responsibility and, and personal commitment for my own time, for my own skills. Um, and I grew up with it and I love this combination because I think that today when I'm part of the big world of philanthropy and running a major foundation, I think it, it, it comes together I understand the, the basic practices of what does it mean to work hard? What does it mean to work up the ladder? What does it mean to grow up without? And also, what does it mean to have this responsibility of making a major partnership and a major grant? Um, and I think this is why we enjoy uh, philanthropy and understand philanthropy, I think, pretty well. Um, yeah, I would, I, I would just also add that, you know, I, another childhood memory I had is, you know, my grandmother who grew up, you know, I would say poor or, you know, certainly lower middle class lived in a triple decker, um, which for those of you listeners don't know are pretty common in the Boston area of, of these buildings where three families live. And, um, you know, she would cook meals. Now she did not drive. She never learned how to drive. Uh, but she would cook meals for her friends and then walk throughout the city 
you know, she was in her 70s or 80s delivering meals to other friends that she felt were less fortunate than her. And, you know, that was a big part of accompanying her and doing this. So I, I, I think, you know, when we talk about the big world of philanthropy, which we're obviously very much part of right now, our background really didn't come from that. Our background came from giving back because it was an important part of, of, of just having a full life. And it didn't necessarily mean how much you were giving back. It meant that you were actively involved in trying to make the place that you were living a little bit better. Um, very good. The, I really like answering, asking the uh, question about childhood giving because uh, it, uh, so usually be, uh, most children don't have their own money. So it forces you to think, you know, outside of the just standard, right? I gave a gift to some folks. Right. <clears throat> we get a lot of, and we get a lot of very interesting answers. And I find that those answers, when I'm talking to folks who are engaged in regular philanthropy, their answer is obvious, uh, often has a connection to the philanthropy they're engaged in as an adult. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. definitely the case here, right? Your first memory is in Jewish communal giving uh, and uh, in relation to other to your other family members, right? You're now running a Jewish family foundation that engages in Jewish communal giving. Your answer was, right, uh, about your passion for Israel and, uh, you know, general welcoming nature and you're doing work on that front um, still. Very interesting uh, and very helpful for our folks. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people out there who are trying to, uh, people who write grant proposals are people who've encountered a problem in their community, right? And they're trying to solve that problem. And they probably don't know anything about, right, who philanthropists are and everything. And that, that uh, hearing that they are human beings, right? Uh, hopefully will be helpful for them uh, with their grant proposals. You both talked to, uh, about the definition of the word philanthropy, which is something that comes up often on the podcast. I have uh, a, uh, I've had, about as much time as anybody to talk about what the word means. Uh, and uh, I think, and I have a pretty good uh, working definition. I should give a lot of credit to my father, who is a retired U.S. history professor. And he read all of the books available about the history of philanthropy. And so when it comes to the American institution of philanthropy, uh, our working definition is, is that it, it's the uh, donation of excess capital uh, to solve social problems that cannot be solved uh, within capitalism. So uh, in general, it's an extra capital activity. So I would say that not all giving money is philanthropy. Uh, for instance, there are corporate giving programs uh, that are that are about that where, you know, uh, not long ago, some executives figured out that advertising can be purchased more cheaply through philanthropy, right? And it's fine. People are, are help. People are being benefited, right? But that giving is intra- capitalist right we can it's it's bottom line connected when you're doing philanthropy you don't there's no bottom line you have to worry about you get to give the money away you could give it all away if you want right and in the history of the world this is why i wanted to talk to my historian father about it that's what's unprecedented about the modern institution of american philanthropy we've had wealthy people for a very long time the word philanthropy comes from the ancient greeks and they had wealthy people but none so wealthy that they could literally give large amounts of money away they needed all of their wealth because they needed, if they were wealthy enough, they needed their own standing army to protect their wealth, right? Bill Gates does not have to pay for a standing army to protect his wealth, right? In ancient times, he would have. But America has created enough safety and institutions that allowed not just Bill Gates, but lots of folks, uh, lots of people 
And this is not just the uber wealthy. We interview uh, a lot of very wealthy people on the podcast. But uh, as you've uh, alluded to, uh, lower middle class Americans have extra money and they donate it to things. Uh, and in particular, the middle class, for, for which is this is less true today, but for a very long time, was donating a lot of money to lots of things. We built lots of cultural institutions here that capitalism never would have created. Uh, so that is the that's the working definition of uh, of philanthropy for the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. What do you, would you would you agree? Do you have anything to say about that? Well, I mean, I think in in, in the basic, uh, you know, philanthropy is the love of your fellow man, and and you know, wanting to try to leave the world a little bit better than where you found it. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a very specific way of approaching philanthropy, uh, which is very defined and, um, you know, focused, and we tend to go narrower and deep. We're also focusing on areas where um, we feel there's a vacuum, that there's not a lot of uh, people giving and that we can provide leadership. I think that comes along from the fact that, you know, both Shira and I were very involved in the world of politics and the world of public policy. And so we have a very specific way of, of practicing philanthropy. First of all, when we get involved, and we're only involved in, in, in a few issues, but we look for a vacuum uh, in an area that we can go narrow and deep and provide some, some leadership. Um, and that's really how we've modeled our philanthropy. But in terms of your audience, I mean, I, there's two things that I, I, when I'm looking to take meetings, I don't want to waste my time. So if I know that what someone is, wants to meet about, meet about is not something that we're going to get involved in. And I also don't want to waste their time. Right. You know, I think time is the most valuable asset that we have. So I'm very selective about the meetings that, that I take because, you know, throughout doing this for, for 20 years, I've realized that you could be kind and take all sorts of meetings and, and, and proposals, but if you know that ultimately it's not going to go move forward, you're, you're wasting both your time and, and the time of the people that are approaching you. Um, so I think that that's, that's a very important, you know, factor. Cause I think people sometimes are get, getting disappointed that um, they're not getting the appropriate uh, time with mm. the principles I mean, we do get back to everyone. We uh, there is someone on our staff that will get back to everyone. We're not throwing the proposals away, but but we're very cognizant of what can work and what can't work, and we're open to ideas that we think may work with us. So I I, I just think that that's an important thing that that you know for people to understand. Well, I like to yes, uh, I, I I agree, and it is a very common. Uh, a question that we'll get when we're so in addition to the podcast, I m most of the time I'm reading people's grant proposals that have not been funded and trying to talk them through right what the best next steps are. And they are and in in most of the cases, the person that they submitted that proposal to has not talked to them about it, and they're frustrated by that. And I see right sometimes that I it, you know depends on the funder. I'm like yes, that funder should have talked to you right. Other times I'm like he couldn't possibly. How many? There's only so many hours in the day. There is a story I've told on the podcast several times, and I tell to the applicants often. Um, one of the very first public RFPs in American history 
this is something my dad found when he was doing the research for us. So I should give him the credit. Um, her name was Olivia Slocum Sage. And she was the widow of a man named Russell Sage. And he left her $63 million when he died in 1906. It's a lot of money in 1906. And she, she, bless her heart, she published a letter in the New York Times and said, I'm a very wealthy woman. I've just inherited a lot of money, more than I could possibly spend. If you need money, send me a letter. Here's my address. <laughs> and she got, she didn't under, she, I guess she didn't know how much need there was in the world uh, because she got way too many letters to read. Uh, it wasn't until like 20 or 30 years later that some someone did the research to actually like count how many letters she got, uh, like 60,000 letters over six months. The following year, she started the Russell Sage Foundation, which is still around today and has a very specific, narrow approach and does not accept, does not take open culture proposals. But I tell the story because that's what would happen to you if you did that, right? Uh, and it's the reason why folks choose narrow appro uh, approaches. And I believe that connects and supports our, the Moss family's working definition of philanthropy. You want to move the needle on disability inclusion in a way that capitalism never would and was not. On its own, capitalism wasn't doing it. So you, you used excess money that had been made from capitalism to try to move the needle in a way that a bottom line program couldn't. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what philanthropy can offer, because we're not governments, okay? We're not collecting taxes. We don't have the, the, the amount or the power of a government. But where philanthropy can add value is where you show innovation. And you show innovation in a way that can inspire governments. Like, for example, you know, our foundation has a longstanding partnership with the Israeli government um, and the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee to push the Israeli government to be more innovative in the way that they include people with disabilities in Israeli life. Now, we have a contract with the Israeli government and they are bought on to this so that they said, listen, as these pilot programs roll out and we see success, we will then change Israeli policy to be less segregationist towards people with disabilities and more inclusive. I mean, that's a model of sustainability that's a model of us putting the money forward and saying okay we're gonna you know demonstrate for you innovation through pilot projects in conjunction with you and really change you know policy but i think that that's where philanthropy steps in and does something that the government may not have done you could you could talk about andrew carnegie building i was you know, about to, i was about to bring up andrew carnegie it's very similar right. to what you just said he, he was he would pay they had to pass a law before he would build a library saying that they were going to fund the, that the library would be public, open to the public and funded by the public. And that's right. why we have hundreds and hundreds of Carnegie libraries across almost every town in America has a free public library. Right. Well, you could look at uh, Bill and Melinda Gates and what they're doing in terms of eradicating diseases and and, you know, putting their their resources, but not only their resources, their time and their effort and 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 their their intelligence and know how into trying to lead world governments in a certain direction. I mean, I, I think that what happens in, in, gov in governments is they don't often have the time or the resources to practice innovation. So they're dealing with triage. And, and when you're a foundation, you can really show innovation. And, and I think that that's what, that's the added 
value of philanthropy. Now we take it another step saying, okay, we don't necessarily want to join the crowd. We don't want to get involved in an area that is overly saturated because that's just not the type of philanthropy that we practice. We're trying to provide leadership and showing a new direction. Um, and I think we've been pretty you know, successful at it. The other thing that I would, I would say that we do, which is very not typical of most uh, foundations, is we practice a tremendous amount of advocacy. So it's not just that we're funding innovation, we're also speaking to the press almost on a daily basis about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we're also, you know, speaking about injustice where we see it and, and, and sort of leveraging our background and our position, everything that we've done and calling out corporations or, or entertainment um, studios or celebrities and saying, this is not right. And by doing that, because we have the credibility, we're also getting influential people in society to respond and say, okay, I've thought about this. I'm going to take an action. And it happens all the time. I mean, not, not hundred percent of the time, but, but often it happens. And I think the practicing of advocacy is something that most foundations will not do on their own. And if they do it, they will fund a nonprofit organization to do that advocacy. I'll add to say that philanthropy has a wide range of practices and needs. And therefore, there is, uh, in many ways, room for all of us, those that are a little bit more strategic and more innovative, and some of us are more traditional and behind the scene. There is um, a need for... Um, you know, different practices of how to work with the different sectors. In the same time, I think philanthropy has something that no other sector has. It has independence, okay, because you are not uh, um, under restrictions of not public, not a business, no profit, no uh, law. Yes, laws in legality, but I mean in how you operate, what you choose to do, how fast you can make things work. So the freedom mm, yeah. is something that I think is extremely unique to the sector of philanthropy. The other thing that I think is unique is the ability in philanthropy to bring all sectors together. Meaning you can work with the nonprofit, you can work with the public, you can work with the uh, business sector, you can work with all of them together. You can, this is an art to be able to bring all sectors with different challenges that each sector brings and to make things work in order to benefit the greater good and the greater society. This is something that I think is not so light to do, it's not so easy and simple to do. No, As right. you said before, it's probably easy to give a check and to decide to give money. It's much more difficult to make it about a change and about deep you know, innovation and relationships. And I think uh, this is the beauty that philanthropy can offer. Uh, yes, absolutely. I, um, the As a grant maker myself, 100% of the grants I've given arrived at the grantee, right? I always got the check there. That part, you're right, is breathtakingly simple. I would be very embarrassed if I were to fail to write a check to someone, right? The uh, but my my success rate is much lower when it comes to like, did this grant have the impact I hoped 
in the beginning, uh, much, much lower than I think a lot of people um, would, would want to realize. And um, the, so uh, I want to get um, uh, a little bit narrower. So there's, there's philanthropy, right, which is quite large. One could engage in philanthropy through a variety of vehicles. Uh, Zuckerberg started an LLC to do it and got some criticism for that. There has been a rising number of uh, folks starting donor-advised funds, uh, which has caused the, the industry to change quite a bit uh, because uh, previously everybody who had a family foundation like you, that information is public information with the IRS. And I, we can go and look it up. So you're, and there's a, a level of accountability there, right? Um, with, with that, that doesn't exist with an LLC or a donor advised fund or, or someone giving their individual dollars, right? And often, right, with our, particularly with our co-review partnerships. Uh, so we partner with um, a Boston area organization called the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Uh, they have a variety of grant making programs that they run on campus, uh, innovation challenges and, and whatnot. And so these are folks from all over the world who have cool ideas and they've applied to MIT for support and money and funding. Uh, and my committee, we, we co-review these independently. We're not part of MIT's process. We, we co-review them. The, the, by far, the main question that they all have, right, is like they know how to apply to MIT. They know how to apply to USAID, right? They can check the Gates Foundation website and look at their specific, very specific RFPs and see if they're a fit for that. Right. Lots of philanthropy is very clear on how they're going to engage in it. They often are like, well, this family foundation, everything they're saying and their websites and their white papers and everything is exactly in line with the work that I'm doing. But they don't accept they're not taking meetings. There's no right solicitate. There's, so and they're they're left <laughs> kind of they've, they've sort of hit a wall. So I'd love to give you a chance uh, to right, imagine right, the, that's the position of a lot of the folks listen. And I will say that when I'm talking to the to folks that want to get into the Family Foundation space, I often recommend specific podcast episodes I've done. Uh, and so talk directly to them, right? Uh, I, this is, I'm going to change the wording of the question a little bit, but I'll um, give some of the background. So there's currently about 50,000 private family foundations registered in the U.S. Your 501c3s, the 990 is public info. And the combined endowment's well over a trillion dollars. Uh, and they're you're required to give 5% a year, right? That's the basic accountant's prattle. Uh, and you don't pay taxes on the endowment. Uh, beyond but that stuff, what is pay the- some, yes. pay some taxes. Yes, I guess that's true. There's a, it's a little bit different. I run a 501c as, as well. Ours is a public charity. Right. I would pay income taxes, I think. <laughs> and I'm not as involved in that. Uh, but yeah, I don't. There, these folks aren't necessarily interested in like which taxes you pay. Uh, but like, the, tell me about the work because you're both working full time. Like, what's the day to day? What are your weeks like? You know, what are you doing? What are you taking up your time with? What's running? A, what is a family foundation, and what does it do? Okay, so I think that that you know there there's a saying that once you know one family foundation, yeah. you have one family foundation. Yeah, I say it. I we say that all the time here. Yeah, that's great. And you know, every family foundation takes on the character of the family, so. You know, there there are family foundations that are very passive, and they you know they meet a few times a year. They write some checks. They decide, you know, these are the things that we want to fund. Uh, the particular trustees like certain projects or the connected school they to went certain to alma mater. You know, right, exactly. They, you know, they have certain things they want to fund, and they and they fund. Um, you know, I would I would say first of all, let's let's look at what a family foundation is. The, the United States government 
allows private families to put aside funds and to create the corpus of a foundation for the benefit of the public good. So the money that, that our family has set aside is public money. Now we are allowed under the law to administer that and to decide you know, where it goes as long as it goes to a charitable organization or a charitable um, um, purpose. I mean, that's basically in a nutshell, you know, what mm. the law is. Shira and I are activist philanthropists. I, I, you know, there's not a lot of examples of it, but there are some. I would say, you know, look at M Bill and Melinda Gates. We're not only giving away, I don't know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, but they are actively involved in studying and on the ground and being involved in terms of what they're doing. We are activist philanthropists. I, I would, I would, I would also describe myself more as a social activist. I am engaged, which I don't think most people know what a social activist is, but I am engaged in a day-to-day -day effort to try to change certain things in our society. And that's what I do with my time. The philanthropy aspect of it is a smaller aspect because especially if we're doing larger grants, um, those grants take a lot of time in, in terms of negotiating and understanding and working with partners that you trust and people that you like and you have you know similar goals. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of what I'm engaged in is advocacy, speaking to the press, using social media, trying to advance the cause. One of the things that we've taken a leadership role in is promoting the authentic representation of disability in popular media. So we're working with the major studios in, in Hollywood where, you know, the major um, players, you know, we're, we're looking at diversity, which is a big part of where Hollywood is going these days and saying, okay, you left, you left aside disability, but disability represents 20% of the population. And most of the time they're inauthentically portrayed, which leads to stigma against 20% of the population which means the people with disabilities are historically segregated and unemployed um, at a very high rate. And, and you're taking a, a, a fifth of the population and sort of segregating them and, and making them not part of society. So a lot of what I do is building an agenda and actively involved in that agenda to try to change that aspect of society because I really believe that our leadership will change the world for a lot of people and their families. What, what, what I come across, because we live in a capitalist society, so most of the people of my own, what I would call um, socioeconomic community and people that I meet are obsessed in the for-profit world with making money. They could be building housing units or shopping centers or, um, you know, they, they could be running a hedge fund or whatever. But in the mind of most people, it's like making money is the most important thing. If you're not making money, you're not working at the highest level of society. In fact, we had, you know, one philanthropist business person saying, you know, if I wanted to work further down on the food chain, I would be a teacher. 
because I think that that would be the highest way that I could give back to society. But how arrogant and elitist is that to say, if I chose to work farther down in the food chain, who told him and who told society? He sounds like he'd be a great teacher. (laughs) <laughs> right, but who who, but who told him that to be higher up in society yep. is 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 playing with money? And 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 by the way, when I speak to many of these people who are very wealthy, and I said, "What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to leave behind?" They don't know how to answer that question. For them, it's a game. How much money can I make? Can I can I move from being a hundred millionaire to a half a billion to a billionaire to a multi-billionaire, but they don't really understand what they want to leave behind other than building a business. And some of them are involved in philanthropy by, by dent of just giving away checks. And some of them are not. Um, But when you talk about, we dedicate our lives to social activism and we're involved day in day, day in, day out building very significant, meaningful partnerships and trying to change public attitudes towards a huge sector of society, people don't understand that. People think that that's the job of a nonprofit organization. And what I've always said is philanthropists, and I've written about this in many different places, philanthropists take a cop-out where they say, we're going to fund an organization to do it, where you have the power based on your perceived status in order to have a larger voice. Now, I think like the Gates understand that, but most people in philanthropy either don't understand that, don't have that in their DNA, or are too lazy to engage in that. So they just are engaged in in the job of giving away money. Most of our work is not giving away money. Most of our work is, is leading. And, and by the way, there's another issue of the tension between nonprofit organizations that we work with as partners and us as a foundation, because a lot of these organizations that we work with, they want us to fall in the traditional role of giving the money and being a cheerleader for the organization. And we're like, well, wait a second, we'll fund you and we'll fund you significantly, but we know more about this issue than you do. Mm-hmm. I'll jump in and just say, um, you know, in terms of day-to-day, it looks very different every day. And it also has many different aspects. So let me just lay out a couple of the things. Um, We have, like Jay and myself, different roles. Jay is the president and the chairman. I'm the CEO. And as a result of just the titles, you can understand that we have division of responsibilities, more operation uh, versus more direction, more uh, planning financials versus, versus, you know, allocating the financials and supervising them. Uh, Planning, as Jay uh, mentioned before, planning the strategy. A strategy means like, how do we want to work? What is the method we choose to work? It means what subjects we want to give to, how we're going to give it to them. Um, what does it mean to be entrepreneur? It's not just a word. Hey, hey, I have an idea. It's actually sitting and writing theory of changes and, and goals and ideas of how the reality due to this partnership should look different uh, the day the day you know after we decide about a partnership. What is the end result that we want to see? 
in, in a year, in two years, in three years, depends how long and savvy and complex the partnership is, um, how many participate we want to see, you know, being um, benefited from one one initiative that we are doing. And we have, over the 20 years, we worked with 355 organizations. We are giving millions of dollars. And we think in a way, how do we leverage? Because no one, none of us, as big as we can be, can solve all of these major needs and issues. So we have to collaborate. We have to partner. We have to understand that we are just one part of the chain. We are not the chain itself. We, we cannot own the whole story. So if we do not work in a way that we bring partners and friends and, and organizations that will be part of you know execution, implementation, uh, whatever it is, we will fail all of us because you know the, the poverty disability the education health are huge major issues we need to work together so what do we do every day we meet with plan we read we meet with experts we uh, um, go to see the programs on the you know on the fields we uh, educate ourselves we write uh, our PEDs, researchers, reports, uh, we do tremendous amount of work that every day can look different. One time with university, one time with science, one time with the workers, one time with volunteers, one time with advocates, one time with grant makers, financial people, uh, lawyers, experts. And I think this is how, um, I think there is a lack, and you said it uh, very well in the question that People perceive and think about philanthropy or family foundation as like, oh, you have nothing to do. What's the big deal? You know, and and I say that sometimes it's true and sometimes it is so far from reality because we, as Jay said, we work in it as professionals. Okay, I came from management and strategy. Jay came from politics. Uh, We bring the skills into the work of how to make due to philanthropy, the world that we live in, different and better, but also interesting and meaningful and effective. Uh, yes. Thank you. I think that's going to be very helpful uh, for the folks. Uh, you two are fairly interesting. So when you're, when you're applying, right, there's, uh, you might, you're, if you apply to a foundation, your proposal might get read by someone who's an employee of the foundation, right? And then, right, so that person needs to keep their job, right? The uh, other times you're applying to a family foundation that has no employees, these are just family members. They, they, you're not, they're probably, depending on the family, I guess, not going to get kicked out of the family, right? So it's a much different, you should really understand the like role of the person who's reading your proposal when you apply to these places, because I think that's going to change your language. They, a low-level program officer at the, at the MacArthur Foundation isn't going to be suggesting a bunch of risky stuff outside the box to her boss, because she wants, she, that's a good job for her to have. She wants to keep it, right? She's going to start, she's going to try her, she's going to right, follow the rules and everything. You, I think you folks are interesting in philanthropy because you're both family members and uh, and professionals, right? So it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to ask both of you that question, and I'm glad I did. Uh, you talked a little bit about the uh, uh, tension between grantees and, and, and applicants, and this is certainly something uh, I deal with here. Um, we, we work with grant makers that want to provide more valuable to the folks that they're not funding, right? Well, we'll partner with us and we've built a 
program that's able to do it. And it means that I'm often talking to these folks and they bring their misperceptions about family foundations to me. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of very interesting stuff. So I think we should um, just sort of summarize. Of those 50,000, the vast majority are the family member, no staff type, right? They might periodically meet. Uh, you guys are unique in family foundations in that you're doing it full time all the time you're out. Right? Right. It's a big decision right. to make. And you had careers before this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in my case, um, you know, I was engaged. I, I'm, I'm an attorney uh, by training. Um, I was involved in politics for many years. Um, so my love is um, public policy and to be able to change on a grander scale um, issues facing the public. Um, initially, I saw philanthropy, you know, when my dad first said, I'd like you to get involved in running the foundation, I, I initially turned him down because I, I was very involved and interested in politics. And I really believed that that was where you know, true change could be made in society or, or actually a bigger change. What I came to realize over the years is that I could build a philanthropic organization that would allow us to be extremely impactful. Um, I, I followed uh, uh, two principles, which we adhere to, 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 to today, which is one, we go narrow and deep. We do not focus on many different issues. We focus on a few issues and we focus on them very, very deeply. Uh, the second, the second um, thing that we follow is um, we, um, um, what was the second? That we look for a vacuum we look for a vacuum in something that's needed in society, but is not well-funded. And so, you know, we are coming in in a leadership role and, and we're not, there are not many funders there. So for example, in the Jewish community where we started, disability was approached, and there's a historic reason for this, which we could get into if you want to, but disability was approached as segregationist, separate schools, separate housing, mm -hmm. uh, sheltered workshops, exclusion from religious life. I mean, it, it was really a segregated society and it was a form of charity. We were helping those less fortunate than us by providing them separate uh, ways to live. Mm -hmm. And we, in conjunction for learning from others said, no, people with disabilities are a substantial portion of our society. They have every right to be included in every active aspect of society. They, they have the right to go to and be integrated in, into our school system. They have the right to live in our community amongst us. They have right to work in companies as regular employees earning a salary. They have a right to be involved in religious and community life. That was sort of a challenge to the society. In terms of the Jewish community, what we did is got very heavily involved in the Boston Jewish community, in, in the Jewish educational system, in employment, in synagogue involvement. But then we mapped out the 
national Jewish community and we looked at organizations and we said, okay, you're not addressing this issue. So we brought our expertise, we brought our funding, and we were able over the years to change the culture of the of Jewish organizations so that so now inclusion of people with disabilities is a main tenet of most Jewish organizations. That took decades in, and it took, you know, tens of millions of dollars to change it, but it also took a tremendous out of advocacy, speaking to newspapers all the time, being involved in social media doing interviews. Um, and, and ultimately, I think we, we changed the principles and changed the values of the Jewish community. I think entertainment, which is something we fell into by accident, because we began to be critical of popular entertainment, where you would have very famous actors playing a disability. And then we began to challenge the entertainment industry. And one of the, the dichotomy between funders and the, the organizations that we fund, what we found, because we initially said we want these organizations to be in front in terms of advocacy. But one of the things that we found is that we are much more nimble. We can speak out very quickly. Usually if something comes up, if a celebrity disparages someone with a disability or if, an, if a company does something wrong, we can speak out very quickly and very forcefully. We're not afraid of our own shadow. We're not. We're not looking at a huge bureaucracy that we have to look at our, um, our, our, um, our business structure and and our board and say, can we say something? And by the time we say something, it's too late. Right. So we found ourselves in the role of being an advocacy organization, and then you know, and not only speaking out, but producing white papers that backed up what we were saying and did the research. And, and, and partnering with major organizations within the, the entertainment industry like the Sundance Film Festival, the Academy Awards, uh, Variety Magazine, um, you know, and, and working with the studios and, and first being very critical, but then giving them praise for where they, they'd include uh, people with disabilities in their shows. So we went off on our own and, and we had an approach and we were able to do it stronger and faster, and that's how we became an advocacy organization, which I think is a role that philanthropists should take. Mm -hmm. um, but, so I, I guess I was able to take my passion for politics and put it into philanthropy. There's many people who you know come into philanthropy from many different walks of life and they're like, you know, listen, I, I mean, I've met philanthropists, but like, I'm an investor. I know how to invest. I really want to focus on yeah. the, the, the money that the foundation has and to grow it and to make it more. And that's what excites me. You know, I've had other people, you know, believe like, hey, you know, I'm not really into this. I was born into this or I came into this. And, you know, I really want to meet organizations that I like and, and, and fund them um, or I'm involved in. I, I think certain causes are really important, like the environment. So I want to find the best uh, NGO working in that area and fund them. Yes. Or, or see, local. I, you know, the, you know, there's a local organization. I'm really attached to what they're doing, you know, and I really want to fund them. There's so many different ways. I, I think what happens is when people approach foundations, they're passionate about their idea, but they don't really know who they're talking to. 
And, you know, we're not simply organizations that give away money. We have different characters. And unless you learn the character of the people that you're dealing with and the people that are making the decisions, you're, you're sort of like approaching them with something that, you, you know, they may or may not respond to. I mean, I know a foundation that would take proposals and just throw it in the trash. If it didn't mean anything, they just wouldn't respond. I've seen you know, it done. We, we, we do respond. But but I do but I do think you have to know who you're talking to. It's like if I went into a business meeting, I want to know who I'm talking to. I want the background. I want to talk to my staff. I want to say, give me the background and who I'm talking to. Yeah. Why absolutely. am I taking Why am I taking this meeting? Is this a good use of my time? Well, this is this is very good advice. Uh, and I think um, as foundations go, you guys have done. Um, you're making it very easy for people who are interested in the work of the Ruderman Family Foundation to find out what that work is, right? You're publishing white papers and you're doing like other, other foundations. It is much is it's, they're not being as uh, narrow and deep, right. Or targeting vacuums. They're targeting areas of funding that are right. Funding Harvard is very low risk, right? That Griff's going to go there. Harvard's going to do something nice with it. You'll get to go to a nice event. Your friends will like you. Like there's really no, no risk at all in doing that. Which is why, and Johns Hopkins, same thing. It's why a lot, and if you if you're wealthy enough and you do a large enough gift to one of those well-known institutions, then you get they get they write a very nice article about you too, right? Very uh, not just low risk, but it's uh, benefit, relevance, benefit, and personal PR benefit and everything. The when you go in the in the direction that you have and you start doing things that you know, I, mean, I imagine you knew this beforehand that um, some people would object to what you were doing, right? You can, not all philanthropy, some philanthropy, absolutely no one objects to it. I'm making a gift to this children's hospital. Like no one has, no one, like probably no one <laughs> has, a, has an objection to that. But there are people who don't like your um, your philanthropy and you knew that going into it, right? You don't need that, right? Uh, but at the same time, you are, one of the things that is kind of important about foundations, especially these days when you know, you've got a lot of people talking about cancel culture, you are more or less uncancelable allows you to pursue things. No one can boycott you because you're not you know, selling any products, right? Uh, and you can continue continue to pursue specific uh, aims. I do yeah, but talk- that, does, that doesn't mean that we're not criticized and we do- Oh, you certainly are. You're much more so than the average flat you've been. Right. People have written- And so, and you, and you, and you have <laughs> to sort of get used to it. Like, you know, one, one time we took on a movie where Alec Baldwin was playing a blind character and we were very forceful because we really wanted to make a point to Hollywood about, you know, you wouldn't have a Caucasian actor playing a African-American character, Hispanic character, Asian character, or, you know, Native American character, but routinely uh, playing disability scene is great acting. And, and, and really the issue is an exclusion of an entire class of people and not giving them the opportunity. So we came down very hard on this, um, on, on this movie in order to make a point to Hollywood. And, you know, I had the New York Post write an editorial against me. So it's like some people would be like, you know, crawling underground and saying, oh, my God, you know, I've been criticized by a major newspaper in the country. But, you know, you get used to that. You're like, listen, I believe in what I believe in. I'm, I, I think I'm making a difference. And by the way, since then, you know, we've had CBS, NBC. We're going to have some other major studios coming on board and saying, yes, we agree that we should open all our additions to people with disabilities and we will change the world. But you have to realize that people are going to criticize you on, yep. all the time. Well, and, and in and, uh, in the capitalist world, right? 
that's that would be a huge concern. Shareholders would be worried, right? You might you might right. start seeing your profits go down and everything. You're able to do this, and and I, I think it's a good thing that you, what you what you've done. Uh, uh, as an actor, I like to think I can play anything, <laughs> right? But uh, right, it's 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 good to have right push on these things. Like I said, capitalism on its own will sometimes do stuff that's not that's not ideal. This was an op. This was you were outside of capitalism. Right, pushing a very no. capitalist industry that is obsessed with making more money. Their rationale for why they were putting well-known white men in roles that aren't white men has always been right. That's what the audience wants to see. Right, that's right. who buys tickets. We won't if we do other casting. We won't. Right, uh, and that's wrong. We proved they proved that's been proven wrong uh, quite a bit. And I think you helped them prove that wrong. Uh, so it's now become a, a, a capitalist thing to be inclusive on that front. Uh, right. And when it couldn't have been done inside capitalism, it's very, um, very successful intervention that you should be intervention that you should right. be. And the other thing that I would I would just say is that we're not part of the industry. Right. You know, we are not. I don't have a stake in the entertainment industry. I'm not. I'm not. You know, funding. You know, films and TV shows and 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 so forth. So we are truly an outsider coming in and saying this is unjust. Yes. And, it's much different and, than when um, like Ron Howard says it and then makes a movie. Right, featuring a diverse cast and makes money off of that, right? right. That's that's he's, which is great. It's good. It's good work for him to do, but it's much different. To you're taking on much more risk, inviting much more criticism, and you're allowed. You can take it, right, and move on. You you it doesn't affect your. You're still able to run the foundation, no matter how many times the New York Post writes about you, right? <laughs> you, you can run the foundation. I would just say that you know there's a personal toll that when you are criticized all the time. Uh, I mean, it's. I would. I would. I would say it's akin to being in public life, in in politics, where people are criticizing you. You have to learn to say they're criticizing me for about what I'm saying and my position. They don't know who I am as a person. Right. I think that's the dichotomy that you have to be able to internalize. Yeah, but there are two other things. I think that they're key to what. Um, you both saying in the question and in the answer um, is the art of relationships. I mean, in order not to have tension and in order to have cooperation and in order to have uh, uh, people listening to you, if it's an entertainment world, the academia, the, uh, it's about relationships, it's about approach, it's about um, sustainability and also responsibility that we own in our roles, meaning the fact that we are funder doesn't mean people need to listen to us, right? It's not because like, hey, you're a funder. Oh, sure, open the door and you're great. You have to prove yourself. What type of a funder, who you are as a person, what motivates you in your values. And it's true to fundraisers and it's such a grant making, meaning before you write a proposal, ask yourself, do I know? Do I know how I write it? Why I write it? What motivates the other person that will read it? Did I make a personal connection? Is it important to like you? Ha we got to this situation in our culture that we live in that emails and text and 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 uh, proposals by um, all mean uh, feel like a replacement to the most important part, which is your relationship. Do we know who we're talking to? Why are we talking? What is meaningful? And you know why is it important? Not just because you're going to get the grant or you're going to get uh, the studio to sign, because you're buying 
allies that believe in your values and you're buying relationship that can be long-term versus short-term and you're creating a change that is multiplied by your investment. And if we all, people working in their philanthropy, understand the art of listening and responding, the art of relationship, the meaning of the words that we all say by advocating, by writing, by creating campaign, by anything, we will understand that philanthropy is bigger, more important, and most importantly, are ran by values and not just by issues. They ran by people that committed and not just by people do their jobs. And I think it makes a difference because we see and we are, you know, all of us through media and through uh, social media, you know, wealth is growing. Philanthropy is going to grow as a result of it. And we all want philanthropy to be impactful, meaningful, and doing what we all can be benefiting from, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, the, the good of the public. And it can be in many ways, research to initiatives. It's not important the issue right now. What important is how we conduct philanthropy. What do we want philanthropy to do and how does it look like? And I think sometimes in relationships with organizations, with partners, we push this issue to the side. We don't think it's the important part, the relationship and the common values. More importantly, can we sign the checks? Can I get the grant? Can I uh, have you listed as, as a partner? And I'm saying to everyone, and this is probably the number one advice I want to give is, do not dismiss the impact of your relationship. Do not dismiss the understanding of the area that you work in because for the long run, you will gain more than for the short run. Uh, yes, that's very good advice. Uh, in general, we, I mean, the, the main piece of advice I give to folks uh, about connecting with foundations that are invitation only. Uh, first, I say, right, uh, what Jay said earlier, if you know one foundation, you know one foundation, right? And you have to keep that in mind. Um, and, uh, second I say, right, you have to, what are the, right, find out the issue that they fund and their values or whatever, and become a useful actor on that issue and wait, <laughs> right? Like if you're useful, if you're a useful and influential enough person in that space, right, the, the funders who are actively trying to fund that space are going to, right, you're going to end up in contact, right? And then you need to, you do need to make strong personal relationships. You, we, uh, I speak to a lot of folks and I read, there is a, a, a burgeoning movement. Um, uh, well, what shall we call it? Re- responsive philanthropy, right? More listening to the grantees. There's even, uh, there are even grants available that allow you to work with your funder to get, right? Listening reports and all that and, and f- feedback loops. And, and it's all pretty good. Uh, useful to some funders, other funders. I think, yeah, I don't think it's something that I think you've, you're already doing the work of listening to the field, right? Um, there are some, I think, uh, radical grant writers and, and NGO folks that would they would like to see uh, the whole field of proposals vanish, right? No more writing grant proposals because uh, it takes up too much of their work. You should just trust them, right? The people who are running the local organizations, they know the issue better than you, um, right? You should just be automatically giving those grants and you should all be, funders should be talking much less, right? I think some funders probably should, but like I said, like our first point, if you know one foundation, you know one foundation. So it's not true for everybody. There's one like l- legal point I, uh, that I want to make for the audience here, 
Uh, right, so I run a public charity, which is part of the 501c3 tax code, uh, and your private foundation is a different part of the C3 tax code. My part for public charity, I have to pass what's called the public support test, which means that I have to prove to the IRS that people are willing to donate money to me. People who are not me are willing to donate money to me. That's how I get, that's how I prove to the IRS that my mission is of value to the public by, by showing them the receipts that the donation has been made, right? So when people say the donor's opinion doesn't matter, right? That's just wrong. That's not how the order it's set up. You have to be able to bring in this much in like donor revenue. And that means you have to listen to the donors and what they want. I think it's possible fundraising became too donor centric, um, right? Uh, but uh, we don't need, I definitely don't want to like get rid of the grant proposal and all of that. Uh, so it's a, it is a very common thing that we're talking about, right? And I do think, and I think everything Shira just said, um, very, very useful, right? For people who are, especially if they're trying to work in a new space and they find a new funder that they're interested in, right? Um, I, think, I think that I would just add, you know, a couple things that, you know, the most successful partnerships we've had um, have been where we're working with someone. It doesn't have to be the CEO of the organization or the president of the university, whatever. It's whoever is responsible for our grant that we have a good working relationship, meaning philanthropy is not all that different from business. You know, you want to work with people who you enjoy working with and that they value you as a partner. Um, the other thing that I would say is trust. Um, if you don't trust someone, um, I would run as far away from them as possible. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I feel, you know, because I worked for many, for five years as an assistant district attorney where I dealt with, you know, criminal defense defendants and defense attorneys and, and, you know, court clerks and judges and, and police officers and so forth. <clears throat> I have a pretty good sense of people. And, um, hmm. and that sort of guides me because I, I, certainly at my age, I want to spend my time working with people that I like and that I trust. And, you know, in the business world, I've run into many people who control a lot of my money, um, but they're not such nice people and they, and they act like jerks, you know, and, and, and their attitude is like, well, you know, I have your money in, your, in a hedge fund or I have, I have your money, you know, in a real estate investment. And it's locked up and we, you know, have the, the legal right to do what we want. Fine. But you're still a jerk, you know, and I, and I don't really I think want it's you. it's possible my... we have the same money manager. Yours sounds a lot like mine. <laughs> I don't really want you in my life. I think, I think philanthropy gives you a tremendous amount of freedom that you really want to work with good people. And because, you, you know, the, the, the number of causes out there that are necessary and important are, it's overwhelming. I once had a conversation <clears throat> with Howard Buffett, who's the grandson of Warren Buffett and, and, and he was running. This, so I'm, I'm, friends of, with, I'm friends with Howie. You mean the Columbia professor or the one that no. runs the foundation? No, from the foundation. All right, so I know. So, so, so Warren Buffett established three foundations for his children. One of the, one of the children <clears throat> is a, essentially a farmer um, when he was exposed to the magnitude of need, emotionally, he couldn't deal with it. So his son, Howard, took over running that foundation. 
But I'm just saying, it's like the amount of need out there is oh. overwhelming. And I've never met anyone who's coming to us with a grant proposal where I've taken that proposal and said, this is not important. I may say it's not for us. It doesn't meet, you know, like what right. we're trying to do or, or whatever, but they're all important. But I do People think- People do the, not idly write grant proposals. It's because right. they're facing something serious. Right. But I do think that the personal relationship is very important. Now, now for us, you know, you obviously have to fit into what we're doing. But as you said, if they're doing something important and it's in our field, we're going to know about them. And we may approach them and say, I understand what you're doing. This is the field we're working on. Let's see, you know, what we can work together. But I'm going to tell you one thing. If I don't trust the person, because I can think of one particular organization that works in our field that I, I don't trust. And it's like, I'm not going to work with someone I don't trust because I don't think anyone in business in the for-profit world are going to get engaged in relationships with people that you don't trust. It's a recipe for disaster. Hmm. Indeed. Um, so yeah, I have a, um, uh, recently you've made uh, the decision to find something to move on from disability inclusion uh, and move on. Uh, and you've received, uh, right. As we've mentioned some scrutiny over that, I think it's more, it's far more criticism than the average philanthropist gets for their various decisions. Uh, many of those 50,000 family foundations I listed will be funding new things this year and no one, there's no articles being written about them and why that's, how that's so inappropriate. What the one criticism I find very strange, it reminds me of a, I'm going to, I'll tell a little bit of a story. There's a, a young lady, Jewish woman who, uh, inherited a lot of wealth. I was involved in the slingshot fund with her and she, and, uh, I was like, I had a reputation for knowing what I was doing when I was involved in the slingshot fund. Cause I was also working as a fundraiser. So. Uh, I would, the, it was fun for me because the other members would, um, most of them weren't working at all. Uh, a lot of inheritors that were, you know, jet setters and such. And they would ask me professional questions a lot. Made me feel very good. And one time she asked, so she had, um, she had been funding in an is, uh, several organizations on an issue. And she had like slightly changed how she wanted to fund. And several of the organizations that she had been giving grants to told her that it was appropriate for her to give them an exit gift. Uh, right. And she, she called me to ask like how much should the exit gift be? <laughs> right. And I'm just, I don't know. Not, if you don't want to fund them anymore, it should be nothing. Right. Like you're, that's there. You're, you've been put in the position to donate, to make these donations. Right. It's your decision to make. You gave them, she had given them like plenty of um, association. And while yes, that makes it difficult for that fundraiser to plan and everything. Right. I've been a development director at a lot of places and you, I can say every single organization loses donors every single year. It's part of the job. You have to plan on that. You can't just you certainly can't just have one donor. Right. Covering everything. Uh, in fact, there's IRS rules um, preventing that. And right. For every donor that's right. Missing the exit gift or whatnot. Right. I happen to know because I run the unfunded list that there's just a, there's all kinds of issues out there that aren't even having that conversation at all. I can't find anybody to fund them at all. There's things that are not that are that these people are writing grant proposals. Their proposals ready to be read, right? There's just no foundations reading them, right? So you you have many many fundraisers out there, right? That you can make their life you can start making their lives easier, right? And you've already helped to the tune I forget the number millions and millions of dollars on this issue. So one I wanted to say right, I'm not I'm, a, I'm not a significant member of the media or anything, but I thought that like some of that criticism and particularly the statement that it is standard for you to give 
like off-ramping funding when you change. I've never, I've been involved in philanthropy for a long time. I don't think that's not standard. It's not what everybody does. Uh, and you're accepting concept notes from the public, right? And you're being extreme, as public as, as I think could reasonably be expected on this. Uh, you did, I am interested um, in, in the concept note um, project. Uh, I know it's, you're still accepting them. I don't think this will air until it's the end of this month, right? That you're done? March? Uh, we are done in mid to April. Okay. So probably won't, it will, people listening to this won't have a chance to, to submit by this time. You will have uh, probably selected something. Uh, but it's interesting. I would say because they're coming from the public, you don't, you won't necessarily trust, right? And you're probably going to get like, like the widow sage, you're going to get a lot of them. Um, anyway, how is that, how is that going? Will it, will it be, will, will it be like I was saying, right? An area that is not currently getting the attention that it needs. Do you think? I would say that the choice to have a concept paper was made for a few reasons. Number one, we are exiting a major issue for the foundation after 18 years. So yeah, we thought, and, and we have a philosophy that says that in order for us to make a decision, you know, nothing about us with, without us uh, is part of how we think and processing anything and everything that the foundation is doing. So in order for us to decide what initiative, what subject, what direction, we need to hear from the pe people on the ground, number one. Number two, we will make better decisions, we believe, if we will be as educated and as exposed that we can be, not just by experts that we choose to talk to, but also people that are out there and understand. And maybe they heard and came across things that we would never come across. And number three, I think it's a great tool of engagement. We believe in engaging with, you know, the, um, the different sectors and the different people we are working with, if directly or indirectly, and having an opportunity to be heard or educate us or expose us in a transparent way will allow people, A, to know how we work, what we do, B, to allow us to get to know people and issues that are out there. We truly believe that it's a very important and interesting way to, uh, to work. We got a lot of good feedback that, you know, it's a, it's a very open approach, very transparent approach that people are, you know, excited about having the opportunity to come across us and we can come across them. And I'm actually excited. Our staff is happy uh, to see what will be submitted, how many ideas, what areas, what categories, and how we need to make our decisions to continue disengagement, which I think is going to be very fascinating. So let me address a different point that you brought up about, you know, criticism. So first of all, most of our grants <clears throat> are multi-year grants. And we gave our grantees a heads up that we're going to be exiting. Um, we've never reneged on a grant. But you made all so, your gift agreements got to the end and everybody right. got the amount that they had been awarded and everything. You weren't well, and, and some of them have not gotten to the end. Some of them will continue for years going forward. And we will always, you know, pay off um, our grants. The, the, the thing is that when you are engaged for two decades on an issue and you really feel that you've brought it 
just about as far as you can bring it, that you've taken disability rights, disability inclusion, and you've made it a central value of your community. Mm. Um, you've already put it in a motion where I don't think it will disappear. Like I once had a, a conversation years and years ago about a program that we were funding, but we decided to stop funding that had to do with a, um, it was a very expensive program, but it was in Boston to create jobs for people with disabilities. And it created hundreds of jobs. And I went on a walk with um, some of the heads of the NGOs who were running it. And they said, you know, if you don't fund it, it's gonna put us in a difficult position. I said, wait a second, 20% of your community has some form of a disability. Are you telling me that one small family is now responsible for 20% of the population, that if we do not fund it, that there is not funding out there in the community to continue doing this? And I said, that is such a ridiculous argument. And by the way, the program still exists. Everything that we have started, I would say virtually every program is still existing. Why? Because for the communities that we invested in, they've become such an important part of of the community. And, and I would say that the more sophisticated organizations understand that, like, I remember talking to one of um, Jewish federations and I, and they said, how do you do it? I said, listen, look at the 10, the top 10 givers to your federation. My guess is that a number of them will have children or grandchildren with disabilities. Have you approached them and had a conversation about helping people like their family members through the community? And their answer was, no, we haven't done that. I said, well, do your homework. You know, Do your work because the money is out there and this is a need in the community. Um, and so I, I, I think that the idea that a foundation in perpetuity has to fund a particular uh, issue when they feel like they've 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 brought it to a level where it's accepted in the community is a false um, is a false perception, and 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 I think we've said where we feel that we continue to add value. Like for example, in entertainment, we are still involved in negotiations with several major studios. That will continue until we feel like we no longer have a role in Hollywood. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, when, when, by the way, we've had nonprofit organizations in midstream decide, hey, the person that you've been dealing with for 10 years, we're taking that person off and we're putting her in, in a different, you know, area and you're gonna work with someone new and they're not consulting us on that as a business partner. So, you know, the way yes. that we've reacted, the way that we've reacted to that is like, okay, you've now changed our business relationship. We're not going to pull out. I'm going to pay it all off. Here's one check. Here's our entire commitment for the next, you know, five years. Good luck. You're, you're pursuing a new, you know, uh, field. But, you know, we feel that the best way to go forward is to have open communication where you trust the people and, 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 you know, it's worked out and people understand, okay, you know, you've changed our world. Now it's up to the world to accept it. And, and by the way, if, if what we've involved, been involved with, if the world doesn't accept that this is a value, we, we've done a bad job at what we've been doing. And I don't think we have.
Um, yeah, the, I don't think you have either. Um, the exact same thing happened to me once as a fundraiser. I had a couple donors to an organization I had brought in. I knew them very well. They were in fact, I had actually known one of them since I was a child, right? So it was very much my relationship. Uh, but I wasn't the boss of the place, right? I don't get to choose everything. Um, but like my relationships are still my relationships. The, they tried to like, to make, take me off of those grants and give it to somebody else, uh, somebody higher up than me. Um, right. But they didn't know them. Right. And I mean, I said the whole time that that's not going to work. You're going to lose me and you're going to lose the funder. And they did it anyway. And I was right. They lost me and they lost that funder. And that funder followed me to my next organization. Right. The um, relationships are very important. And they're, 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 that's not just because they knew me. They knew me and respect my work. I happen to be fairly good at a limited number of things. <laughs> the I, I would I, I would just go on to say that, you know, even more than that, relationships are the key in anything in our world right yeah, and yeah and, we're human beings and, you know relationships matter more than anything else and and i remember i'll tell you a short story i remember years and years ago my, my dad passed away a long time ago but you know i was in a meeting with him in at a law firm um and we had a hedge fund um young guy present to us and and at the end of his presentation, my dad said, tell me what's more important when you're investing in a company. Is it the idea of the company, like their, their, their vision, or is it the CEO? And the young person thought about it. He said, I think the, the idea, the idea, the vision of the company is more important because we can always take out the CEO and put in a different CEO. And my dad's like, I think the exact opposite, you know, you invest in people and, 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 you know, we, that's been the most successful when you invest in people that are passionate and share your values and you can trust them. That's the, that's the key to success. Very good. So I'd like to save my very big questions for the end to reward the folks that listen to the whole interview. So I have two more, uh, some of big questions, uh, as we wrap up here. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned a couple of times, I was on the board of something called the slingshot fund for nearly six years. I did three years of the cycle. Uh, my grandmother uh, was a, um, not quite, she funded a lot in the Boston area. Uh, our most significant co-grantee is Gateways. Uh, gran I took um, grandma on a, a site visit of Gateways. They were in like the, like the Newton Jewish Community Center building or something, I think. Uh, and she, uh, she really liked it. At the time, I was working at the school for boys with learning disabilities, and it was a very important topic for all of us. Uh, and we got to, we, uh, grandma, my cousin got involved on their finance committee and I know grandma made some donations. I don't know how much she didn't always tell me. Um, but, uh, it was a, it's a very cool organization. I got to attend, um, a, probably the coolest bar mitzvah I ever went to it was a, a young man. He had, he was dyslexic and had autism. And so, um, preparing him for his bar mitzvah was very difficult. And we had to make a lot of interesting, the, the most interesting allowance was, so he wouldn't be comfortable talking in the room until he had touched everybody in the room. So he came in and he the very first thing was he walked around and he touched all the people in the pews, touched her. I didn't know him, but he came right up to me and he was just like, he had to have that physical contact before. He, and then he felt perfectly comfortable and did a great reading and interpreted it all. It was a really fantastic and interesting thing. And I know you've been very, you probably, you might be one of the most significant donors to Gateways. We, are, we, we happen to be the founders of Gateways. Oh, are you? Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, well then. 
Uh, you also, uh, so the year after I left the board of the Slingshot Foundation, uh, they published a guide that had some supplements, including the Ruderman Family Supplement for Disability Inclusion, which I believe featured gateways and some others. And this is one of yes. many examples of you pushing the Jewish community uh, to be better on disability inclusion. Uh, I very much joined, I had, so I came from Maine into DC and I had several very bad meetings with Federation executives. Uh, up in, one time in Boston, one time in New York, one time here in DC, one time down in Miami. They were all bad for basically the same reason. Federation wants me to buy $75 tickets to cocktail parties. This is what they, this is what they wanted. They really didn't want to hear what I was working on. They had a, they always, they always had a folder with many, many pamphlets of what they're doing. Right. And I can get involved with what they're doing, but they didn't want to hear about, you know, what I was up to or any of that. And every now and then they would say very offensive things to me. One of them said that he was, he's really concerned about interfaith uh, marriage. He thinks it's the worst thing to happen to the Jewish community since the Holocaust. That's what he said to me. And in turn, like uh, when you, like you said, you should do your research. My father is not Jewish. And that's pretty, like, you can find that out. He could have found that out before he talked to me. <laughs> right. Uh, and so obviously I didn't get involved in, um, in Federation and all that. He actually got, he had a bad habit of saying that to folks and got fired for that reason, as I understand. Uh, but anyway, I joined, when I joined Slingshot, I was very much thinking, right, Federation's Goliath. This is, I'm David. This is my Slingshot, right? I read, I read uh, an interview, Shira, where you were talking about uh, some of the legacy organizations. And we have some great ones uh, in the Jewish community. It's very organized, the Jewish nonprofit world. Um, I didn't, um, uh, Slingshot definitely moved the needle on a lot of stuff, youth engagement and some other things, not as much as I wanted. The big Jewish establishment is still there, still as popular as ever. And a lot of their youth engagement efforts are the same kind of, please come to the cocktail party. Uh, case in point, one, I got asked to join the board of the joint once I was going to be the young board member or whatever. And then I go, I went all the way up to New York to talk to them about it. And I was going to be a non-voting, like special youth rep, which they only told me about until I had gotten to New York into the office to talk to them about, which is just poor youth engagement. The Anyway, can you talk to me a little bit about your, so you, I, you've mentioned it in some interviews. Uh, I'd, uh, and you've, you founded new organizations like Gateways. Uh, and also engaged with, right, the, all of the, I assume all of the big legacy organizations. Um, and this is somewhat similar to like big foundations versus small foundations, right? The unfunded versus the funded nonprofits, right? We, when we think of the nonprofit sector or foundations or whatever, I think we have to remember like there's a lot of diversity of, of size, right? So you could talk to me a little bit about your experience working with both the big, the big dinosaurs, I like to call them that, behind their backs. They don't listen to this, I don't think. <laughs> uh, and the like, the the upstarts and such, because that's a, this is a top. I work mostly with upstarts, and so this is a topic I think about a lot. So, listen, I think that they both have their role in present day Jewish community. All right, when we were going out to organizations that we felt had a major impact you know we were investing in the reform movement and the conservative movement and and uh, the orthodox movement and chabad and hillel and uh, foundation for jewish camping 
however, I want to, you know, we're following a historical model that's been around over a hundred years. And one photo just sticks out in my mind. Uh, this happened within the last, I don't know, let's say half dozen years. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu came to the United States and there's a picture of him meeting with the leaders of Jewish organizations. Every single person in that photo was white, male, middle-aged or older. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen, I think I've seen the photo, yeah. And, you know, I'm like, you know, this doesn't represent the Jewish community. And, and what, and I've written about this in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. You can, you know, look it up. Um, there is a great diversity in the American Jewish community. American Jewish community is made up of men and women, about half men, half women, maybe more women, um, Jews of color, uh, Jews with disabilities, LBGTQ. Um, so it, it is such a diverse Jewish community. Um, and by the way, most Jews in America don't even identify with the major Jewish organizations and probably could not even name who they are. The, you know, this alphabet soup of, of, of organizations. <laughs> so my, my main point is like, if you want to be representative of the Jewish community, then you have to make yourself look like the Jewish community. And if you look at the United States Congress, especially the, the House of Representatives, the House of Representatives looks with each election cycle more and more diverse. You know, you have many more, um, if, if you look at, at, at Congress, Asian Americans, African Americans, uh, LBGTQ, Native Americans, um, you know, it, it's, it's much, it looks more representative. It's not quite there, you know, men, women, you know, but it's certainly much more representative than the American Jewish community. The American Jewish community is still a community that is run by people of wealth, men, and it is an exclusionary community. At the same time, they want you to give to these organizations and be involved in these organizations. So I am probably on the fringe of being, even though I'm part of this world, being much more critical. And I think if the world doesn't look like um, the Jewish community, you're not going to attract the same people that they want to attract because one of the main tenets of, of, of the organized Jewish community is we want people to remain Jewish. We want them to be involved Jewishly. But, you know, how many major Jewish organizations are run by women? I can think of only a few, one of which I'm on the board, the, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, which we have a woman CEO who's been CEO for a couple of months. So, um, you know, it's 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 an old boys club and an old boys club is not going to work in today's world so i i would say unless these organizations get their act together and start to become more reflective um they're in deep there's a deep problem there um you know and and can they reform themselves and can they become more inclusive they can but you have to also understand that these organizations, you know, 10% of, of, of their funders are, are funding the other 90%. And if you become like an oligarchy, if you become uh, an organization that's funded by 
the wealthy and that they're taking control, that's not a representative organization. And I don't think you can stand up in front of the United States government or in front of uh, the Israeli government and say, we represent the Jewish community because you don't. You don't. All right. So I would say upstart organizations tend to be more democratic, egalitarian, more representative, um, and they will rise because I think that, that younger funders will identify more with them. My addition to Jay's uh, answer will be um, that you're always going to have newcomers because, you know, time changes, practice change, needs change, and it makes sense. Like, you know, you have the startup uh, companies, right? Like, you know, every other day, you we hear just of the those that make a great exit, but there are hundreds of them. Uh, and it's okay, and we need it, and it's good because it keeps us, you know, on, on I call it on the edge in a good way. It reminds us um, what's new, what's needed, uh, what needs to be changed, and, and why we should change with it. The legacy organizations, as Jay said at the beginning, I find that a lot of them are needed even today, and the pandemic actually proved it. They have the most savvy presence and the, the largest database base and many other things. In the same time, if we want to be an effective nonprofit community, and if we want to be a meaningful one that is engaged and relevant, we have to change the way we practice, the way, as Jay pointed out, like, you know, how we do elections. Is it transparent? Is it diverse? Is it democratic or someone that chooses uh, how it's being done? And these practices are possible to be changed. So a lot of what we're saying is we need to be up to date. The other thing I want to say we have too many. You pointed out just the foundations number. Just imagine the nonprofit. Too many organizations. Over, a, mil then, over a million registered 501c3. We don't need no, we don't. so many. It is okay to say in the nonprofit world, in the Jewish nonprofit and outside of the Jewish nonprofit, it's the same phenomena. Every time you sit with a CEO or board, they find a reason why we cannot close the organization. And I say, we need to be brave. It is not fun to close. It is very difficult. It is a very difficult decision to make to merge. And merging an organization, it is a very, very, very complex uh, thing to do, but possible. We cannot afford spending so much money and so much time just because we're not comfortable making these brave decisions of, do we really need to open a new nonprofit? Most of the time, the answer is no. Can we merge? Now, what happens is when you sit with funders or chairs uh, on boards, many times it's so uncomfortable for them to make this decision because it means you put yourself out of business. Now, if you want to be honest, philanthropy should aim in many cases, and the nonprofit included here, we should be out of business in some cases, not in all cases, but we should not aim to say, oh, we wish to give more food to poverty because then it means there is more people that are hungry in the street. We need to aim to you know, minimize the numbers to see how we're solving the problem and not keep providing. And, and therefore, if you go need by need, organization by organization, we do not always need to choose just because of ego 
And just because we're not comfortable to make professional decisions, to keep starting. It's not like in the business world, although many business people say, well, what? Sure, you know, in the funder world, well, what's the problem? There is a need. Let them start. Let's have a competition. I said, the only difference is in the profit world, you decide at the end of the day to close a location, to merge, to sell your company when you see it's not worth it. In the nonprofit world, we're in the business of fundraising. And when you talk about people's job, no one's going to ever want to close an organization because people will lose their jobs. Yes. And, it's, and, their, and their health care and... and- Exactly. So we need the funders and we need the board members in the legacy organization and in the new organizations to be comfortable to make these brave decisions of merging, closing, maybe not opening, opening, open just when there is a true need and a vacuum and not just because we need a competition constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, this is part of the voice. We it bring is for in- sure the case. One of the more difficult conversations I have to have with the proposal writers is that right? You don't need. We don't need this, right? You should stop. Yep. I don't say it. I say it with a lot more tact, <laughs> right? But like they yep. need this, and oftentimes I'm the last. Com- I'm the last conversation they've had about that particular idea. They they merge or they or they go and they contact a specific organization. We've been talking for a while. I have one more large question I'd like to ask. Uh, I talk to a lot of funders, my own funders and others, uh, useful for the job that I'm doing. Um, and uh, uh, Jay, you mentioned uh, politics a few times. Uh, currently, there's a, a, a tie in the U.S. Senate uh, because of the special election in Georgia where we elected a Jewish senator and an African-American senator. And I would say that the, that two um, very common issues that I'm talking about with funders and that in many cases that they're considering launching new funding efforts are around uh, anti-racism work. Um, the big foundations are all talking about it. I also think that anti-Semitism is... Um, is part of that. Um, sometimes it's direct, exactly the, the same thing. Um, the um, the Jewish community has a long history of getting involved in civil rights work and anti-racism work. Um, and obviously anti-Semitism affects them as well. Uh, have, do you have any thoughts on the current climate as it relates to philanthropy and um, the various isms? There's also growing amounts of anti-Asian American sentiment, we should mention. And there's a number of groups that that, uh, face racism and discrimination in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, listen, racism and discrimination are central to what America is right now. And and, and by the way, racism against African Americans um, has been central to the history of our country. Our, Our country was founded and established on slavery um and you know coming out we fought a civil war over the issue ultimately of slavery um reconstruction uh which began to um uh establish a more equitable uh world for um you know former slaves was stopped and then with the jim crow laws and mm-hmm. the ku klux klan and everything and we're still living through this the 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 the, the fact that more african american people are killed by by the police um you know the blatant racism that our society you know lives with is integral to the history of the united states so i think if you are an american and you live in america racism is something that 
you have to pay attention to because it is eating at the core of our country. Anti-Semitism is an age-old issue that is with us today. Even even uh, uh, today, as I was driving my daughter to school, you know, there was a story about a football team in Massachusetts that was using uh, code words like if they were going to go to the right, they would say Auschwitz or Rabbi or Dreidel. You know, in in a community that has Delightful. almost no Jews. So, you know, and the, and, and the coach is asked to step aside while they're investigating it. So, listen, anti-Semitism is a live and well. Uh, we also have a, have a history in, in this country of people, you know, taking up guns and, and involved in mass shootings uh, when they're disgruntled against Asian-Americans or African-Americans or, you know, whatever, you know, uh, LBGTQ or whatever, um, you know, Yes, this is the world we live in in America. I mean, I happen to think it's an issue because there are too many guns in America and uh, too many automatic weapons that people have easy access to, but that's another issue. But yeah, sure, this has to be, you know, part of, you know, part and parcel of anything that we do and anything that we consider. Um, We are very sensitive, you know, to this issue in terms of our staffing, in terms of, Anything we do in the public, uh, any you know presentations, it, it's definitely something you know that we have have to pay attention to. And the other thing I would say about the Jewish community, the Jewish community has always been at the forefront, not only about combating anti-Semitism, um, nice. but you know combating racism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they they've always been front and center in the, in in any civil rights movement. You look at the disability civil rights movement; Jews are in the front and center of it. Um, so I would say, yes, this has to be something that any American needs to pay attention to. Have you been, um, uh, paying attention to philanthropy's work on racism? There's a new initiative from Kellogg, which is the world's third largest foundation focused Mm -hmm. on racial justice. I myself have, one of the things that's interesting, I get calls from some of the like world's largest foundations asking for my advice on how to fundraise, which what that says to me is that they, they're really just getting into it um, anew. Um, again, I think uh, racism work is a big topic. Um, the And I imagine some of the concept notes you've received um, will uh, maybe looking for you to directly address it or at least um, consider it. Because uh, like you said, it is so prevalent in American life. No matter what issue you choose, I think it'll you'll probably want to think about racism. I think we're definitely going to explore it uh, more deeply than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Uh, what are you? Uh, so, uh, what is uh, one of the questions I like to ask at the end uh, with everybody? Uh, what are you most excited about? Is it your new funding area or something else? Um, I would say what I'm most exciting about excited about it is finding the peace and harmony and the human relationships that are going to better my life and that I'm going to be able to contribute to, because there is an aspect of life that is sort of a rat race, you know, where you can get stuck in a rut and, and be involved in, you know, a whole bunch of meetings and, and, you know, go forward, you know, none of us, I mean, I, I once had a discussion with with a major philanthropist that I'm not going to um, mention, but 
you know, I said that the deeper I get involved in philanthropy, the more I, I feel small, the more I feel insignificant. Mm. And and this philanthropist said, you know, I, I the, the more I get involved, the more uh, significant I feel, the more I think I'm making a difference. I think we all have to be humble. And I think we have to realize that any of us can make some difference, but we can't change the world. Um, governments can't change the world, never mind you know, philanthropy. So I think you have to be involved in something that excites you and that gives you meaning. But a, a big part of meaning is the people that you work with. You got to be involved with people that you love and that and that you and that you like being around and that you trust. And that's what excites me. You know, finding a community and finding partners that I really feel I want to spend my life engaged with. Because a lot of our life is engaged in what we do professionally. Uh, that's very good. Ashir, I want to hear what you're excited about. But I, uh, I also want to do get the more involved in philanthropy you get, I think what Jay just said was very interesting. Does it make you feel smaller or bigger? I have to say that uh, I'm I'm in the middle. It doesn't make me feel bigger because I I, I don't believe in, uh, um, but it does make me feel good and meaningful and that we do make a difference. Uh, and I also feel like Jay, you know, very small, like uh, we are just one part of, uh, of yeah. this whole story. And uh, we remind ourselves that all the time because it is very confusing. And I think it's sometimes, you know, dangerous because when you get confused uh, and it's not just in philanthropy, it's in business and in its life in general, it can, you know, it can take you off track. You have to stay grounded and humbled and, and money is something temporary um, that, you know, can, um, it's not what defines you. And it's important to, you know, remember that because, you know, this is our way of uh, viewing it. We're raising kids and we want our kids to know the great feeling of a hard word, uh, a hard, hard work, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. and understand what does it mean um, uh, to be you by finding yourself, yourself by values and by uh, choices you make and not by wealth. And, and we very much believe in it in our day to day. This is how we raise our kids. Um, What's excite me, I have to say, it's a combination. I, I'm excited by the small things, uh, by, you know, having uh, a good day, by having a small, you know, um, small realizations in the small things around me. It makes me very, very uh, happy to see and realize that every day from the beginning and, and not just to get lost in the big things, because sometimes they're very confusing. Um, and I'm also excited by, you know, by not just the direction of the foundation, by all of what we did this year of processing and bringing it all together just makes me realize like, oh my God, how much work we put into it and how many people were affected by it. And it's such a empowering but humbling realization. Uh, and on my personal note, I'm excited for my kids to finish, you know, another year, to move forward, to hopefully see, um, you know, some direction of going back to some good routine in the near future and, um, and seeing them growing and, and having experience and opportunities. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm an optimist and I uh, truly believe that um, once we learn to realize all the small things, 
we can uh, appreciate the bigger things even more so. Uh, terrific. That is all uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, I particularly like, I'm, I'm fascinated by the like big versus small thing. I think many of the folks writing proposals would imagine that the philanthropists all feel very big, right? That the act of giving grants makes you feel big. And I can say that, that I've been in that, it's made me, it makes me feel influential, meaning, right? When you do it. I don't, I don't know that I always, that, it, that the, my, I've been privileged to be able to have a hand in giving, in doing some grant making. Uh, and um, I think it's at times makes me feel big and at times makes me also feel small because you, because you you see all the proposals that you didn't fund that you passed on and all the stuff that is and you're you're aware of all of the problems that aren't being addressed and that can make you that can also make you feel small. I think that's probably helpful for fundraisers to to be able to to understand uh, that you can that being a philanthropist is not all about being big. Uh, thanks, right. you've given me a good long Thank amount you. of time. I really appreciate I, it. I'm sure you have a lot I of. I would work. just say one thing, just to end, is that you know we're all part of. Um, trying to make the world a better place and everyone has their role whether it's you know a grant writer or whether it's a philanthropist or whether it's uh, a nonprofit organization uh, everyone has their role no one is more important than the other and whenever in the 20 years I've run into problems it's always had to do with ego so I, I try, you know, to supplement my ego and 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 just to, um, you know, you know, just sort of be humble because I think I think being humble as as a character is the most important thing you can you can have and you can give back. I have to run, so I'll say thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank, thank you, Jay. Uh, I think uh, being humble and humility is a great way to end. The uh, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, this has been the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope everybody enjoyed listening. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Shira. Thank you. Be well. Take care. Sure thing. Bye. <laughs>